Are we recording? We're recording. We have a full battery. Godspeed. Good luck. May the force be with all of you. Yes. Don't stand right outside the door listening. (laughs) (laughs) This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood. I'm Kay Goldstein. And I'm Josie Garbes. Mrs. Garbes, do you prefer Mrs. Garbes or Josie? You can call me Josie. Okay. Or mom. Okay. (laughs) Yes, listeners, you guessed it. Today, Angela and I are interviewing each other's moms. As we wrap up before our little summer break, we wanted to talk to the two workforce mothers who have influenced us the most. About both their paid work and their unpaid work, their sense of identity and self, And about what has changed for moms, and what hasn't, and what's next for them as moms, grandmas, and two women still very much on their own journeys. So Angela, when we first talked about doing this episode, what got you excited about it? You know, my mom is an immigrant from the Philippines, and she spent most of her career as a working mother raising three kids. And I just don't think we hear those stories enough. I think she would also be the first person to tell you that her story isn't that important. So I wanted to like give her that opportunity to own her story and to share it and to realize that it is significant and meaningful. And of course, you know, you and I are really focused on doing work that makes a better future. That's a big part Mm -hmm. of what we do. But That work doesn't exist in a vacuum, and I just feel like, you know, I wanted to do this episode because I feel like there's a lot we can learn about our current situation from hearing more about history and sort of where we've come from both personally, specifically, and more generally. And I feel like our own mom's own stories are really very different and very interesting windows into that. And of course, neither of us would ever claim to have a perfect relationship with our moms. (laughs) But um, there's so much that we're curious to learn about them and also about one another through talking to each of them. And also to hear their reactions to our work. That really surprised both of us. We'll talk about that more later in the show. So later in this episode, I'll interview Angela's mom, Josie. But first, Angela talks to my mom. Um, Angela, I am backing away from the mic for, Mm. I think, the longest stretch. My voice has ever not been on an episode of The Double Shift. So everyone enjoy a fresh new flavor. And I'm tossing the car keys to you. All right, Goldstein, get in the back seat. (laughs) Buckle up. Uh, Kay's driving and I'm riding shotgun. (laughs) Woo! So Catherine's mom is Kay. Kay's own mother had three kids under four years old when she left her husband. Kay now knows that alcohol abuse and domestic violence were part of that decision. And her mom was definitely in survival mode as a single parent with three little kids in the 1950s. She was she was a good mom. She was she was always trying to do what and I, I don't even like to say good mom or bad mom because you and I are in the same same camp in that feeling. <laughs> because <laughs> she was doing her best, and yes. there's no question in my mind uh, yeah. that that was true. But it was very, very difficult for her many, many times, I think. Kay's 
Mother Dee moved the kids to Kay's grandfather's home. And when he retired, Dee went back to work. And Kay, at the age of nine or ten, was suddenly in charge of making dinner for her whole family. And obviously that was a big responsibility, but it also sparked a love of cooking in her. Kay was told by her mother to work hard and earn a scholarship to go to college. Dee had never finished college herself. And you know what? Kay got that scholarship to UNC Chapel Hill. It was an amazing time to be going to college because it was 1967. And mm. I was in the first class of freshman women. I was radicalized fairly quickly because they took five men for every woman because they weren't sure women could handle being in a big university as freshmen. So we had to be a little bit smarter to get in, but we were forced to study four nights a week in the library or in our dorms, but the guys weren't. So <laughs> oh, so people were like monitoring you and oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. like chaperone yeah. type yeah. situation. Yeah. Huh. yeah. And you, you, had, okay. you couldn't wear pants unless you wore a long raincoat too. I mean, there was just, a, and this is a public university. So it was, wow. so I found that offensive to me mm -hmm. as a young woman to be expected to meet different standards than my male classmates because I was a woman. Right. I'm going to, I want to jump ahead just a tiny bit because I feel like there's, um, I want to go back a little bit into your career, but just since we're talking about the spirit of radicalization and, you know, it seems like you were part of this generation that were really trailblazers in terms of, okay, so education and then, you know, profession and career and family, like all of that was kind of up for grabs. Yes. How do you look back on that time now? I feel like getting to college was a really formative time. Yes. And what you said about having all these choices being up for grabs, this was true of many of my friends. Um, they were going to applying to law school. They were applying to medical school. We did have choices that were not available to people just a few years back. And I did end up first getting a master's in clinical psychology, so I was mm -hmm. doing uh, psychotherapy in small groups. I was working with kids with drug issues and that sort of thing. But I felt like that I didn't have a lot of mentors in front of me. I think we were breaking a lot of new ground. And I remember yeah. feeling like I don't really exactly know how to do this. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> how could you? <laughs> I didn't. But I didn't know that other people were having similar issues. Kay was about to break new ground in another industry as well. She'd always loved to cook for other people. She remembers that one time she had a friend over for dinner who asked her if she could make the same dinner for 30 people. Oh, sure, she said. <laughs> and that's what she did. And a catering side business was born that she loved. But her primary work was still as a psychotherapist. But over time, Kay realized that she was telling her clients over and over, most of them women, that they should be really clear about what they wanted to do with their lives and then make it happen. So Kay considered her own situation. And I had to make a choice about whether or not that was professional enough. You know, being a, being a chef or owning a, a food business now is kind of a cool mm -hmm. thing. It wasn't quite that 
glamorous back then. And it's really not glamorous. Right. It's at really all. hard work. If you want to know the truth, <laughs> it's really hard work. <laughs> it just looks I know. Really I mean, if you're cool. like rolling out um, croissants, that's layers and layers every day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I wonder that's um, exactly, you know, to leave the safe. I mean, remember what you were saying about your mother was kind of pushing you to excel. And so working as a therapist, a psychotherapist and having a degree in psychology, that's a very um, well-respected field, you know. And so yes. and I think if we put ourselves back in that time period that you're talking about, like, it is a risk. Like, so did you have like fears around that? I did. I did. I was mm-hmm. a little nervous about, you know, it's about personal identity. You know, yeah. who are you? Okay, I can say I'm a psychotherapist, and that, that seemed to be mm-hmm. fine. Saying that I was going to open a food store and cater um, didn't feel, quote-unquote, professional. And it was just had to do with just my own point of view and a lot of other people's probably point of view. I mean, I was going to say, but you did it anyway. Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, that takes a lot of bravery to do that, you know? And foolishness, because I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. <laughs> You can be very brave when you have no idea. (laughs) For years, Kay continued working as a psychotherapist while catering on the side. And then Kay opened Proof of the Pudding in 1979, a catering business and gourmet food shop. That business is still around today. Kay and her husband, Buck, had been trying to start a family for a while. And part of the reason why Kay chose psychotherapy was because she thought it would be a career with a flexible schedule. But the food business? Not so much. Catherine and her younger brother were both born while Kay was running Proof of the Pudding. Full-time, a business that kept growing and eventually included a restaurant. Their family caught the attention of a magazine called Working Woman. Here's an excerpt from a feature written about them in July of 1985 called real-life super couples. And a heads up, Catherine was called Casey by Kay and Buck when she was a kid. They scheduled time for each spouse to attend to Saturday or Sunday personal agenda items and time to spend together with Casey. Even so, Buck says, the first thing to go is your recreation. At a recent meeting with his ad agency, Buck recalls, two men were 15 minutes late because of the children or the carpool. It's tougher to be a father now. Kay replies that it's still easier for a man to be 15 minutes late to a meeting than a woman. I felt so guilty about that article. I eventually shared it with Catherine, but I thought if she ever sees this, she's going to think that What we did every Saturday morning was think about how we were going to foist her off on the other person so that we could do something like go to the gym. And that wasn't our relationship with her. But I felt like if she'd seen that out of context or or at an earlier time, it might have felt like that. And so I didn't want her to see it. I felt bad. Well, I mean, it's interesting how like that feeling of guilt that hasn't changed for people. (laughs) I think I think it's gotten a little better, but I, um, I think that's still very persistent. Yes. And I think Catherine and your conversations and some of the things about dealing with guilt, mother guilt, has really helped me put a mirror to that and a microscope also about what is that? Where did Mm -hmm. that come from? You know, why did I feel that way when I was just trying to survive most of the time? (laughs) So What, what is it when you look? What is it that you see now? 
what I see now is that um, I needed more help. I needed more support. Um, I needed to know it was okay not to do it all perfectly. It was okay not to make it look easy. Yeah. <laughs> it mm-hmm, might get messy. Mm-hmm. Part of it, you know, I was in a, it turned out that my business was well known. Uh, there were lots of articles written about it because we had broken yeah. some ground. So people knew and they they had some expectation about who I was and how successful I was. And the bottom line was I, I was successful at doing many things, but it wasn't easy yeah. at all. Yeah, I basically burned out. I mean, there were times I, I remember being in labor, talking to somebody about firing an employee while I was in labor. <laughs> when I was had delivered my second child, we had, at that point, um, a restaurant and the takeout food business and the catering business. It was at mm-hmm. the holidays. And cash flow was a huge issue. I wasn't sure we could make payroll because we had to collect uh-huh. on all that money that was going to be coming in. So I was dealing with that while I was having small children and so I, I really burned, I eventually burned out on that. And I basically left it all. I mean, I really didn't take big bucks out of this thing. It was a matter of survival for me at that point. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Cohousing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. 
That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. So after about 12 years running the catering business, food shop, and restaurant, Kay Goldstein turned things over to two partners that she'd brought in. She did some flexible part-time work as a consultant, editor, and writer, as well as volunteer work while her kids were young. Now, I wanted to know what it was like for Kay when Catherine started thinking about becoming a mother. Do you remember any conversations you had with her about motherhood and and working? Um, And I also know that, um, you know, that first year of Asher's life, that first year that Catherine became a mother, she had a lot of challenges. And I wondered if you wanted to share your perspective on that. Well, when Asher came along and had some medical issues, I remember her saying, I never knew that I could ask for more time. And she did Mm. need more time. She really wasn't ready to go back to work. And when Catherine left her job, the one thing that I said to her that I had learned was not to feel that she had failed because I had felt that I had failed and also not to leave anything on the table. She deserved to be treated like a professional and that she should fight for what she had Mm -hmm. earned in that process. And I felt really clear about that and strong about that. And I wanted to support her in that. And it was, it was hard. It was hard for her. And I feel like that's directly informed by your experiences, you know, Yes. Yeah. I really, I just have one last question, which you've kind of talked about a little bit, but I've, I really appreciate your perspective on it and how the show, I know that you're an avid listener of the show and it seems like it's helping you think about things that you've been thinking about your whole life. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when Catherine told you that she Mm -hmm. was changing you know, shifting gears to focus her journalism on working yes. motherhood. And what has it meant to you to see her do this work? It's not surprising, first of all. Catherine was always interested in new challenges and new adventures. She has a voice. And I'm learning a lot about having been in that early generation of women's lib, mm-hmm. so to speak, that we took it to a certain point and we were very proud of ourselves to do that, but we hadn't finished the job. Huh. And I don't know how many generations it will really require to finish the job. I mean, yeah. we're talking about a patriarchal system that's been lasting for millennia. Yeah. So I, these things just don't change overnight. But when I, I hear her talking about mom guilt or 
what's happening in jobs for women and how many women have lost their jobs or had to leave their jobs, especially during the pandemic, I really think, oh, we, we really have some problems here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm really proud of the work that she's doing to bring, bringing that forward. I wanted to say when you started off saying that, um, so this is the first time that we've ever met or talked, but when you said that you're not surprised that she was doing it, I thought talking to you, it's not a surprise to me that, <laughs> that she's doing that. I think she had a pretty good role model. If you didn't feel like you had that, I think you've been able to give her that. So loved talking to Kay. Her answers had so much clarity and thoughtfulness, like she has been and still is, reflecting on all her experiences and who she is. Since Kay left the company she built, she's taken on a lot of projects. In addition to the unpaid labor of caring for Catherine and her brother as they grew up, Kay has written a cookbook, a spiritual fairy tale, and she teaches meditation, she writes poetry, and now that she's vaccinated, she is spending a lot more time with her three grandsons. She is also, and this did not surprise me, and it delights me, working on a memoir. So now it's my turn to talk to Josie Garbez, Angela's mom. Josie was born and raised in Manila in the Philippines, the seventh of nine kids. She describes her family as not rich, but her mom was very resourceful and an entrepreneurial woman. My mom was not a hands-on mom, that much I'm going to tell you. She couldn't do that because she had to do other things to keep us financially going, you know, and feed nine kids, dress nine kids. She even pursued college when we were grown up. My mom and I graduated at the same time. I was finishing high school. And she was completing her chemistry degree. Wow. So she even has a pharmacy degree. Wow. She even have a master's degree. The only thing she didn't do was complete her thesis. Josie came to the U.S. from the Philippines in 1971 with Angela's father, and they eventually settled in a small Pennsylvania town. They were both trained in medicine, him as a pathologist, and her as a nurse. Soon, Angela's oldest brother, Peter, was on the way. And... Josie remembered the words her godmother, who was a doctor, had said to her at her wedding. She said, take any chance you get to go back to work because it will help your marriage. If all you have to talk about with your husband is cooking and cleaning, it won't be good for your relationship. So Josie took this advice seriously, and she worked at a nursing home, in a clinic, and she taught part-time at a practical nursing school. And then I ended up being a hospice nurse. I was a volunteer first. I, I volunteered. In fact, I brought Angela sometimes with my volunteer work, with permission, of course. And I said, I can do this. You know, I can do this work. So I did. And my work helped me a lot, you know. It gave me my own identity. Because before you were known as your children's mom, or your husband's the wife of Dr. So-and-so or something like that. No, and but when I worked in my hospice career, I became a VIP in a certain place. And, and that certain place is the funeral home. Because when I come and pay my respect, the family all look up to me and so happy to see me because I was there with them. 
And but although I have to admit, I became too into it. I was so dedicated to my work and my patients that sometimes on the weekend I would make excuses so I could go see the family or go to the funeral home. It, I, I, I lost my boundary uh, as far as my work. Even the on-call nurse would call me and ask for help if the patient is in my area. I said, can you get this call? If I'm always saying, okay, sure. It's a good thing my husband. That's when he started learning how to cook, he said, because I'm always late coming home. <laughs> but before I do go to work, in my mind, I said, oh, what am I going to cook tomorrow? You have to plan all those things too. Uh, I usually end up sometimes buying fast food. But yeah, my work gave me my identity. I think it helped me a lot that I knew but although my work did hurt my family a little bit because I remember, Mom, can you just all talk about death and dying? Is that all you can talk to me about? <laughs> you know. You know, seeing and hearing how passionate you were about this work is really inspiring to me. And I also think about, you know, a lot of times, a lot of us feel like, you know, the work work we do is important, but it's not life or death. But the work you're doing was life and death. You know, being with someone in their last moments and providing comfort and direction and, and support to their families, you know, that is that is sort of the essence of, of life. And, you know, in, in certainly such important work. So I could see how that could be really engrossing and, you know, hard to have a lot of boundaries because you might want to really be with someone at a crucial moment or you want to say goodbye to someone, you know, so that seems really very understandable in terms of why you were so passionate about it, you know. It seems like you really found it was really a calling to you, it sounds like. It is. Yes, yeah. that's what I call it, too. And, you know, Catherine, it's just that sometimes you feel you're appreciated more by others. Yeah. And sometimes you don't find that within your immediate family because they yeah. need you for something. And then you'll have to divide yourself. And so my my work, it didn't complete me completely, <laughs> you know, like the, right. the movie, <laughs> but it helped. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I really relate to that. I'm curious, though, when you're talking about, you know, you are getting really involved um, with this work. You're really passionate about it. It's really a calling for you. And you have three little kids. So there's a lot going on at home. And did you still feel like you were also carrying the load in your family of most of the childcare and most of the parenting and most of the housework? Were you still doing all of that as well? When I started uh, my hospice work, Sometimes I'll be assigned to draw fasting blood sugar. So that means I have to leave the house early because mm -hmm. I have to be there before they have breakfast. So my yeah. husband was responsible for taking the kids to school. Right. And um, and he doesn't deny this. The kids were always late at school. <laughs> <laughs> and they went into a parochial school, so they had to face the mother, mother principal. And uh, when Peter, my son Peter, turned 16 or 17... I was so happy that he could drive. Oh, my gosh, what a relief. But looking back now, I said to myself, oh, my God, I gave my son a big responsibility. Three lives, you know. He takes them every day to school and then takes them back home. 
I don't know if I'd like to do that again, but <laughs> at that time, I was so happy. You were so relieved. Yeah. Yeah, my husband, uh, yeah, he, as I've said, he learned a lot being on his own mostly until I get home. But usually I had things pre-planned. We have our mainstay of food. I They know hamburger helper. We <laughs> lived on that too. Because <laughs> that was the quickest way to make a meal. We'll be right back to hear more from Josie about Angela as a mom and what it's like for Josie to live in this moment of increased activism and what's next for her. So thinking about um, Angela as a mom and what she is experiencing as a mom, how do you think things are are different specifically, not just in child raising, but for moms in terms of moms who have careers and, and work they're passionate about? Because obviously Angela, like you, is also passionate about her work. So how do you think things are different now? I think without any uh, family support, I'm sure it's very difficult to be able to work and that's why I'm we're so glad that we're here for her, you know, take care of the kids. I think without support for most mothers that are working, it's really very difficult, I think, to make it. In fact, I don't know how she does it because as a writer, you have to be inspired. I said to myself, how do you do it? How do you write me? I would like to be, I, I would like to be a writer, but I don't have the words because her words are so good. <laughs> I don't have enough vocabulary. Let's put it that way. I'm curious uh, when you said that you would want to be a writer. What what would you want to write about? Well, I, you know, with my hospice experiences, I could have written a lot of books. I could have shared a lot of things, mm. but I didn't have confidence in my writing skills. Mm. So, but I I know I could write a book, but I didn't. One of my big regrets. So many women of your generation had to blaze trails and do things for the first time. Do you think of yourself as a trailblazer? I, 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 I don't know how to answer that question uh, because if I had influenced anybody else along the way, I would not know. But I know that I believe sometimes I have had some effects on people, uh, like a daughter of my patient. I, I cannot forget what she said to me when I took care of her dad. She said, you know, now that I know what it is to die, I'm no longer afraid because hmm. she saw her dad pass away peacefully, you know, because death is something that I don't have a trailblazer, but I know I probably have affected some people in their lives. I may not know about it, but I know that what I did, hopefully were all positive, uh, yeah. um, helping families and because, yeah, hospice is not an easy work. No. I, I did write to one of my when I when I was retiring, I said, you know, it's physically exhausting, mentally challenging, emotionally. I have good descriptions of it. In fact, after I wrote that, one one of the nurses 
you should write a book about this <laughs> because it's really, really, it, it, it's just different. And I'm glad I was given that opportunity to be a hospice nurse because yeah. I would not have wanted to be anything else. So one more thing I wanted to talk to Josie about were some of her experiences with race and as an immigrant and Filipino woman at this moment of increased violence and hostility against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. You know, if I were confronted or accosted, um, I'm sometimes in my mind, I play that in my mind. What if somebody says, go back to where you came from, you know, because I have friends whose family have been spoken like that. Hmm. And I would say, I have done a lot to serve, now that I'm a naturalized citizen, I have done a lot to serve my countrymen here with my work. That is what I'll uh, I'll say, you know, I, we have done a lot for this country. Hmm. What have you done? Hmm. Things are changing so visibly <laughs> the last four years, especially, you know, when you see the attacks on on other non-whites, it's just so different. Uh, I mean, I'm not a very political, but I feel like I should start getting involved. The one thing that holds me back is I, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were gang wars. You could see uh, stab wounds, gunshot. So I'm so scared. That's why I would like to march but the fear of my childhood experiences doesn't mm. allow me to. I'm so afraid of violence. I, mm. I just can't deal with violence. But maybe I'll be in my old age. I can get stronger and pick up the placard and walk around. I told Angela one day maybe I'll go with them with my grandkids. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, at this stage in my life, you wonder, what, what am I supposed to be doing now uh, mm. other than help raise my grandchildren? What is next? Josie Garbes worked as a hospice nurse for 25 years. She is now retired, though sitting still really isn't her thing. She stays busy by helping raise her five grandchildren. She likes to garden. She likes to try new recipes. And she has a passion for browsing for treasures on Facebook Marketplace. So, Angela, what was it like for you to hear your mom talk about her joining you in your activism? I loved that. I, it's something that she has mentioned to me, but I liked hearing it from her to you, right? Which made it hmm. seem a little more real, not just like, oh, that's nice, like, maybe I'll come with you, right? Never, But never really have making any real plans to. And it feels really great because I think that um, my own activism, it's not, you know, I don't know that it's not directly because my parents were marching in the streets, right? But um, they instilled in me, just by being who they were, a real pride in myself and a real sense of, you know, what I deserve and what I'm owed. And so I think that um, it kind of feels like this beautiful full circle moment for her to um, 
be realizing that because maybe if she doesn't realize that it's direct or if it feels indirect to her, she certainly has a big part in who I am and why I am the way I am. I love the idea that she has inspired you in that way without maybe her fully realizing it or knowing it. That's awesome. Yeah. And I hope if you're listening, mom, (laughs) I hope you hear that now again. (laughs) So, Catherine, one thing that stands out to me is how your mother is writing a memoir And my mom, which I had no idea about, she talked about wanting to write a book about her experiences. And so it feels like both of our mothers are reflecting a lot about their lives and experiences and wanting to put in their own words what their life was like for them. And that makes me want to revisit, you know, that Super Couples article that was written about your mom. Do you remember when your mom first shared that article with you? Yes, it was a couple of years ago. They were cleaning out a storage unit and found it. And honestly, uh, you read a short excerpt. I could talk mm. about that article and all the problems with it, like, all fucking day. <laughs> I feel um, like this is, like, an entire quarter of, like, a media analysis class I that you know. would teach. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, we are actually going to post some excerpts from that article, including the photo of with me and my parents as a one-year-old um, on Instagram and continue the conversation there. But what struck me about the Super Couples article was to see a picture of myself as, like, a toddler in this magazine and see how all of these tropes about how to be a super mom, like, Mm -hmm. and all these, like, like pieces of advice about, like, waking up at 5 a.m. or trading off chores, like, these really now very cliche pieces of advice, how they've been drilled into us, like, by the media and by society for literally my entire life. Like, it was very, (laughs) like, too much of hitting the nail on the head to yeah. see this all laid out in my own family, even. Yeah. And I mean, I know this is one of your uh, personal pet peeves, where it's like, we're going to solve problems by having an individual um, approach to it, or we're going to adjust these things in our lives. Right. right. Micro solutions to right. systemic problems. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You have the yes. vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how, you know, here on The Double Shift and in our writing work, we're constantly thinking, you know, In a different way. We're trying to reframe that to talk about motherhood in the collective sense of it, right? Yes. But, you know, still for me in hearing our mothers talk, there's something just really powerful about the direct line between their experiences and perspectives and our own. Did it feel like that to you? Yes. So, obviously, our moms or other caregiving figures in our lives influence us in some major ways, but I hadn't really thought that much about how our experiences and our work would influence our own moms now. Like, that was a big surprise for me. I think about what your mother said about how we did a lot of work and to feel really proud of, you know, the Women's Live movement a few decades ago. She was like, but there's more to do, right? It's not over. And... That rings really true for me, and it reminds me that, you know, we're raising kids, and part of our charge is to keep that progress going and to make it better for them and for who comes after them. (laughs) 
So we can't wait to keep this conversation about moms in America going, as always. Always pushing forward on the progress, (laughs) Angela. (laughs) Um, And we will be back with some new episodes in the fall. I'm very excited about them. We've got a lot of great stuff planned. And in the meantime, consider sending this episode to your own mom or a mom of a different generation. And we hope it sparks some interesting conversation. And if it does, we'd love to hear about those conversations, too. And just a reminder, this summer, we are going to be doing some members-only monthly hangouts. We'll be Zooming in from across the country for lots of conversation and fun, and we don't want you to miss out on that. We can't wait to get to know you all a little bit better. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. It starts at $5 a month. And if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. Remember, Doubleshift members get an ad-free show and weekly episodes. And we can't make the show without you. If you want to be a member and can't afford it, email us at askthedoubleshift at gmail.com and we'll hook you up. Stay sweet, listeners. Have a great summer and we'll see you in the fall. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Catherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shreppel. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation. And you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift.